few days, we still have the light of Christ. Still going verse by verse. Now, had we started this study here uh, when when y'all were here? We started that study before. We hadn't. Okay. All right. So we have been making our way kind of verse by verse through the uh, book of Revelation and we have made it up to chapter chapter 9 and the second half of the uh, of the book. And so we are in the portion of the tribulation um, that um, is God bringing his wrath and his judgment um, upon the earth. As we've already seen in the book of the Revelation, John was on the Isle of Patmos. Um, he was there uh, because of his testimony of Christ and for the, his work in the gospel. And there on the island of Patmos, um, in that hard labor camp, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him uh, and took him to heaven in a vision and set before him what we know as the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, also known as the apocalypse, relating to the end times. Um, the church has been called up and is in heaven and is no longer upon the earth by the time we get to chapter 9. This is during the period of time known as the tribulation where God's wrath is being poured out on the earth in measure. Um, it's not full measure. We will see the full wrath of God being poured out later on in the book of Revelation. But in a series of segmented, portioned judgments, the wrath of God is being poured out upon the earth. Now what we're also seeing in this study is we're seeing God's grace and mercy uh, all throughout this. And I don't want you to miss the grace and mercy of God even in the pouring out of His wrath. Now what I mean by grace and mercy? What I mean is, is if God wanted to, He could have poured out the totality of His wrath on the earth at one time and accomplished everything that He's accomplishing through the tribulation in an instant. But instead of doing that, He brings short, segmented portions of judgments that fall in different places, different directions, different seasons, different groups of people. And the idea would be that as God is pouring out His wrath in one segment, His wrath is not being poured out on the population of another segment. And therefore, whether it's those who are experiencing the wrath of God should fall on their face and repent, or those who see the wrath of God being poured out, and though it's not on them, see God's grace and mercy and turn towards Him. And what we've seen in our study of the book of the Revelation, particularly regarding the tribulation, is that there are many unbelievers who are living in, during the tribulation period of time who do repent of their sins, place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and even many will be martyred for their faith because of their faithfulness. But many others who will see and experience and even declare that the trouble and trials and wrath that they are experiencing is coming from God will never repent of their sins and therefore suffer the consequences of God's judgment, not just to the point of death, but beyond the, the point of death, eternally separated from God forever. Here in this particular passage, we are in the second round of God's judgments, if you will. And they're not just... Um, uh, sequential in nature. We saw the six sealed judgments of God, and if you were the seven sealed judgments of God, and in the seventh seal, as the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven, but that led to the cascading effect of the trumpet judgments. 
And now we're in the trumpet judgments and we're in the sixth trumpet judgment. And after we get through the sixth, when we come to the seventh trumpet judgment, a little bit further down the way, we're going to see that the seventh trumpet judgment does not bring about uh, another judgment upon the earth as much as it opens up the next a sequential round of judgments called the bowl judgments. And they're the bowls of wrath that are being poured out. So here in Revelation 9, during this second period of the judgments of God, we are walking our way through the trumpets. And in the trumpet judgments of God, we have seen God use every bit of His creation in order to bring about uh, and to direct His wrath upon the earth. Uh, For example, we have seen God, uh, even in Revelation 9, use angels. Use angels. Uh, The angels are in the presence, angels in the presence of God are given trumpets. As they blast those trumpets, then that um, initiates God's wrath of the trumpet judgments. We have seen that God uses creation. Um, He gave us creation to enjoy. He takes back creation. He brings judgment on His creation. And we have seen that uh, as well through one-third of the waters turning to blood, through the grass and the trees being burned up, and all these things, which of course would wreak havoc and devastation upon the people and the economy and the world in which they live. We've also seen in recent weeks, and we've spent some time studying it, that God also uses fallen angels. God uses demons as His instruments to bring about His wrath. In other words, God is sovereign and in control of everything, including the demons. And what we've seen in recent studies is that there was a subset of demons, a subset of demons who acted in a way that was so heinous and grievous towards God and God's people that God took them and reserved them in chains of darkness in what the Bible calls the abyss or the bottomless pit or a prison. And there they are reserved in chains in darkness awaiting their final judgment that will come a little bit later in the book of Revelation. But here in Revelation chapter 9, what God is doing is God is allowing these demons for a season of five months to be set free to wreak havoc and to bring God's wrath upon the earth with God's direction and with God's limitations. Limitations. And we saw this in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 5 that these demons were not permitted to kill anyone but they were permitted to torment for five months and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man and they were not permitted to kill in that time though they certainly would have if they could have but God placed limitations on them It's important for us to realize, even as we study the passage of Scripture that we are looking at today, that God is sovereignly in control of everything that happens and everything that takes place, even over the evil deeds that happen upon the earth. In fact, Martin Luther said it this way. He's credited with saying that the devil is still God's devil. His point? Clearly, Satan is both evil and powerful, but he is still the sovereign Lord's devil. There is only one sovereign God, and the devil is not that God. The important truth is this. Ultimately, nothing happens apart from from God's determination. Nothing happens apart from the determination of God. Absolutely nothing. Now, let's be clear. God is not the author of evil. God is not the one who created evil. 
God created Satan and his angels. Ultimately, Satan was an angel in heaven, Lucifer. And pride was found in him. Sin welled up out of that. But God uses evil for His purposes. And even what we're going to see in today's message is that God uses evil to judge evil. God uses evil to judge evil. We saw this last week in Revelation chapter 9 uh, in the first part of the verses where the star fell from heaven and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him and he opened and they came and they were sent out to torment in those times. Now, when we come to our passage for today, the Bible says in verse 13, then the sixth angel sounded. And you remember that these are the presence angels, the angels that stand ready to serve God in His presence. And and John says, I heard, in verse 13, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. A voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. You remember in previous studies also that there's an altar there and the prayers of the saints find their way into uh, up to the altar and those prayers are offered up to God mixed with incense from this altar. So this voice is, uh, is not... We're not told who spoke these words, but we would assume, and we can always get in trouble assuming, that this would be the angel priest, the priest that was standing and serving at the altar and ensuring that the prayers of the saints were pressing up towards God as we've seen in recent studies as well. So, a voice from the altar, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, now now look at this, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, this would be in the northern part of the land, and this would be uh, the northern part of the land covenant God made with Abraham. So, there is in the river Euphrates this these demons, and these demons are there, and they are bound there. Now, if you travel to the Euphrates River, and you were standing on the shore, and you were looking out, you might say, I don't see any demons here. But just because you don't see them, doesn't mean that God hasn't bound them there. Remember, that as we've seen in recent studies, Demons do not have the ability to uh, to visualize themselves. They don't have a way to become visible. They don't manifest a body for themselves. Um, if they did, by the way, it certainly wouldn't be right uh, with a pitchfork tail and all the imagery and things that we have of the devil and his demons. If they could fashion for themselves bodies, then I promise you they would be the most attractive personalities and people they possibly could to draw as many people to them as possible to deceive them and to lead them astray. But they don't have the ability to do that. In fact, it's only in Revelation 9 we saw last week that we even have any description of what demons look like. We would have no clue what demons look like if the Bible didn't give us that indication uh, that we saw in the first part of Revelation 9. So, just like God took these um, subset of demons and He placed them in the abyss, and you remember that when Jesus encountered the man possessed uh, the, the, uh, uh, with the demons of Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, depending on which book of the Bible you read, same place, and they identified themselves as legion, they said, have you come to torment us before our time? Do not send us to the abyss. So the demons that are free and wandering around the earth, wreaking their havoc, they are concerned about being captured and bound by God in the place called the abyss. So Jesus affirms the presence of the abyss. The demons refer uh, refer to the presence of the abyss. Uh, 
and the Bible in the book of Revelation related to the end times confirms the presence of the abyss as well and the demons that are there. And if they can be there and bound there, then there also can be demons bound anywhere that God chooses. Amen? And if they can be bound anywhere that God chooses, here, what John tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there are four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now you may say, well, you keep talking about demons, but the Bible says that they're angels. Right. They're angels, but they're not the good angels, the holy angels. Now, why would I make that assumption? Well, for several reasons. Number one, when we see the work that they carry out um, and the evil that they do and the fact that God uses evil to judge evil, I think it'll become clear. But also because good angels are never, holy angels of God are never ever bound in the Scripture. They are free to be the messengers of God and to do exactly what God would have them to do. So there are these angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the sixth angel who had the trumpet said to release them. Now notice in verse 15, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Notice verse 16, and the number of the armies of the horsemen was, New American Standard says, 200 million. 200 million. Now, John's also indicating that he didn't take the time to count them. He heard the number of them. He heard the number of them. Now, now, what does this tell us? What can we glean from these verses of Scripture? Is I want to go back to, before we even see the wrath that's poured out there, I want you to understand this simple sentence because I think it's true and I think it's exactly what Martin Luther said referring to the demons. And that is that even the devil is God's devil. What can we glean is, is that God again in these verses, He directs what evil does. And He directs what evil does. If they weren't released, they would not be able to do the things that they did. If they weren't given the parameters, they would not be able to do the things that God said do. They are listening and obedient to God. They do exactly what God says. They go exactly where God says go. They obey the boundaries that God is placing on them, not because their heart is towards obedience, but because they don't have any way or ability to go beyond the bounds that God has set for them. And when the time comes that their tenure is up, if you will, at the end of the season for which God directs this and uses them for His glory, they return to the place exactly as God says for them to do. So last week we saw in Revelation chapter 9 that they were free for five months. I will guarantee you this, on the authority of God's Word and God's authority alone, every single one of those demons that were released for the period of the five months, at the conclusion of the five months, found their place back exactly at the abyss where God said they were to to go. So I want you to understand... God is not the author of evil, but God certainly directs what evil does. And we're also going to see in verses 16 through 19 that God determines what evil does as well. I want you to see the clear directions that God gives. Look at this in verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen were 200 million. Some people wonder, there were four demons released at the river Euphrates. So where did the 200 million come from? Are these 200 million humans 
or are these 200 million the demons that were stirred up by the four angels that were released from the river Euphrates? The truth is, is we don't have a clue who these 200 million are. If they're people, they're people that are influenced by Satan himself. It is interesting that Time Magazine, for example, in 1965, um, in 1965, so you know how many years ago before I was born, five years before I was born, in 1965 indicated that China has an army of over 200 million, and that was in 1965. Could God use the Chinaman's army? of over 200 million, influence them, use Satan, use them as human instruments there? He certainly could. Is it possible that these are demons and these demons are there? Certainly it is. Regardless of whether these these 200 million are human armies or whether they are demons themselves, doesn't matter. What matters is what's directed and what is accomplished is pure evil wreaking havoc on evil upon the earth. Notice verse 17. And this is how, and John says, and this is, this is how I saw it in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. Interesting way John puts this. This is the first time in the book of Revelation that John is acknowledging not being in the vision, but being outside of the vision now, past the vision, and recounting what takes place in the vision. So remember that what John is doing is, is he is in heaven, he is seeing from heaven's perspective the, the, this vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ coming about. And John's task is to take the indescribable of the things that he is seeing and to capture in human language in a form that we can understand. How do you do that? Let's imagine that you are called up to heaven and you see the glory of God. How do you bring what you saw to earth and communicate it in a way that we can understand clearly and accurately and descriptively exactly what you saw? It's impossible. You can't. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, John is describing in this vision, he says, I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. Now notice this description. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire, this version says, and of uh, hyacinth, uh, rubies, uh, sapphire, uh, was what Corbin's translation said. That's a dark blue color. And of brimstone. Now notice this. The heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Now it's interesting to look at the description of these who will be pouring out in, in the, the wrath of God upon the earth. Ancient myth has fire-breathing monsters, right? But I want you to understand that in the end times, when God's wrath is being poured out, that's not going to be the, a myth. It's going to be a reality. And these beings, now notice these beings, it's un- unbelievable. They have these riders. The riders are protected. They have their breast bl- breastplates on. right? The color of fire and has scent of brimstone. That goes back to the, to, uh, and refers, uh, looks also to when the bottomless pit was opened and the smoke came out, similar colors there. And out of the horse's mouth, similar colors as what came up out of the uh, bottomless pit when it was opened earlier in chapter 9. Notice that these heads, the heads, they out of their mouth proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. Now, if go down to verse 19, and the power of horses is in their mouth, so they're dangerous on the front end, but also notice they're dangerous on the back end as well. You see that? 
Alright? So on the back end, on the heads and on their tails. Why? Because their tails are like serpents and have heads and with them they do harm. They do harm. Whether these horses are coming or these horses are going, the wrath that's poured out and the evil that is done is devastating. Now, how devastating is it? Well, I've told you before that each of these wraths of God, judgments of God, are poured out in increasing severity and with increasing rapidity. So they're piling up and they're going faster and faster and faster and every every swath of God's wrath is more devastating than even the, 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 the swath before. We've already seen numerous, numerous people killed. Now notice what happens here in verse 18. What happens in this one? A third of mankind. Now, this is not a third of mankind in terms of all of mankind that's on the earth and now a third so that you have two-thirds remaining. Why not? Because in the sealed judgments, we've already seen a fourth, we've seen a third, we've seen all this done. Theologians tell us that when this third of mankind is destroyed, in terms of those who were alive at the beginning of the tribulation period, 70 plus percent or more of all the participants are on the earth have now been killed have now been destroyed. Nearly 70%. Notice what it says here. Notice what it says. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. What are those three plagues? By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. So, so God, again, He directs what evil does. He determines what evil does. And He brings about His wrath upon the earth in such a way that one-third of the remaining habitants upon the earth, now a grand total of 70% of the people, have been obliterated, destroyed from the face of the earth. Some, of course, were saved, as we've seen with the 144,000. We're going to encounter them again. The martyrs who came to faith in Christ uh, and ultimately will will be will be say, uh, saved and, and carried to heaven. But the vast majority of which are unrepentant unbelievers. And it's the unrepentant unbelievers who were killed. Now, you would think, and I would think, that the remaining people who witnessed this evil would turn to God, wouldn't you? Think about, beloved, think about the world in the days following 9-11. When evil struck the United States of America and the towers fell and 3,000 Americans lost their lives, there was a movement across America to come together and to do what's right and to repent. Statistics tell us that church attendance went up in the days following that. There were uh, numerous people who, who decided to get their life right with God, repented of their sins, placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There was this movement when the reality of the terrorist attack hit and where it came from and the safety and the security of God bless America was challenged. 
that there were a segment, there was a segment of the people whose hearts turned towards God. Now, if we saw that in America when 3,000 people lost their lives, imagine what you and I think should take place if now 70% of the world's population has been destroyed through these catastrophic, cataclysmic events that have come upon the face of the earth, you would think that those who were alive and remaining in that day would turn towards God. However, instead of doing that, God's judgments reveal the utter depravity of the human's heart. The utter depravity of the human's heart. In fact, look at it in verse 20. The Bible says, the rest of mankind. Now, who are the rest of mankind? The rest of mankind are the unrepentant unbelievers that are still alive on the earth after 70% in this in this one this one judgment one third are destroyed 70% of the world's population has been destroyed and notice these the rest of mankind the rest of the unrepentant unbelievers those who were not killed by these plagues notice what it says they did not they did not repent of the works of their hands. Why? Why did they not repent? Well, the Bible tells us here in this passage they did not repent because humans love their idols. Humans love their idols. Look at what it says. They did not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood. And then John clarifies and he says, of these idols which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They didn't repent. Now, it's not that they refuse to worship, right? There are some people who get angry at God and they refuse to attend church. They refuse to worship. Now, the fact is, is that every one of us are, were created to worship and we are all continually worshiping something or someone, even if we're not worshiping the one true God. Here in this passage, they refuse to worship God. They worship the idols. They worship the idols that they created with their hands. John Calvin said it this way, that the mind begets an idol and the hand gives its birth, gives it birth. His words ring true to Scripture. In both verse 20 and 21, we are informed that humanity does not repent in the face of God's judgment. Verse 20 drives home the truth that idolatry is at the core of an unrepentant heart. The rest of mankind refers to an unrepentant unbelievers who did not die from the seal in chapter 6 and did not die from the trumpet judgments in chapter 9, yet they refuse to worship the God who created them and made them, but they gladly worship the gods of their own hands. And take note that this idol worship is connected. This idol worship is connected to demon worship and both of them are close companions. 
In other words, worshiping idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk is in concert with worshiping demons. So to worship stuff is akin to worshiping Satan. Dead sinners worshiping dead gods of their own making. No wonder Romans one twenty two says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, why is idolatry such a big deal? Idolatry is a big deal because idolatry robs God of His glory and His rightful place in your life and demons take His place. Now, I don't want you, because we're sitting here today and we're in church and we're worshiping gods, to think that idolatry is something that happens over there instead of over here. And by over here, I don't mean in America. And by over here, I don't mean North Carolina. And by over here, I don't mean Alamance Community, uh, Alamance County. By over here, I mean right here inside Doxa Church, in the hearts and lives of each and every one of us. If you are not aware of the idols that you begat in your own mind and pursue with your own hands, then beloved, you are engaged in idolatry and are unaware of it. Those who deal with the with those who are able to deal with their idolatry, they know the kind of idols that their own heart produces and they fight against them and they kill these other gods. Now, what are some of these idols? Well, anything that you think right now is missing in your life that if you just had that, your life would be complete is an idol that if you're not careful, you will chase after. For some, some worship money. Now, you don't have to have it to worship it. Certainly there are those who have money that worship money because it gives them security and satisfaction. It's the security of having means that enables them to confidently go about and do the things that they do. And if that money were to go, they would wipe out their life around them because God is the money oftentimes of those who hold it because it is their security blanket, if you will, and the things that they do and the risks that they take and the things that's there. They become... Um, uh, resting on the means that they have and finding, if you will, a satisfaction or a salvation within the means of those money, of that money. Now, as I'm looking across the room right now, your eyes are kind of going because you're like, well, we're not people of means. Whew. We don't have to worry about that one, right? But did you know that even more people worship idolatry of money who don't have it. And they think, if I could just get it, my life would be complete. No, it wouldn't. How many people do you know? Popular people. Actors, actresses, singers, songwriters, right? Athletes. Grew up with nothing because of their talent, skills, and ability. Get everything and still lead miserable lives. Stealing, wind up in jail, committing suicide. Why? 
Because that which they pursued, once they got a hold of that little G God, could not satisfy the desire of their heart. And therefore, even though they had it, it felt empty. What's another one? Relationships. Single people oftentimes think if I just was in a relationship with someone, my life would be complete. And in the end, it's not. Trust me, it's not. No, no, I'm kidding, Michelle. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's not bad. It's not bad. I highly recommend it. But listen, that spouse or that, that, that relationship that you're pursuing is ultimately not going to satisfy the longing in your heart that is shaped like God, that only God can satisfy. And when that idolatry becomes a relationship, the person that you fill that void in your life with by that relationship can never do for you what God alone can do for you and will leave you feeling lacking and feeling empty. And when you pursue the idolatry of relationships, you come up short and lacking and unfulfilled. And beloved, God is not glorified by that relationship. What's another one? Man, I think we could do this all day, right? I mean, we, we really could. We could do this all day. For some, it's possessions. Right? For some, it's education. If I could just get to this degree level, then people would think that I'm this and that brings some kind of uh, a temporary satisfaction to them that ultimately leaves them hollow. There are so many idols out there that we have to guard against that we have to check our own lives and see what is that idol that is drawing me away? What is that thing that I'm either placing my security in by way of salvation or I would feel more safe and more secure if I could just have that and your your life is a pursuit of that. Beloved, whatever it is, if it is not God, if it is not God, it will ultimately leave you unfulfilled. And therefore discouragement we've talked about. Depression sets in. Despair comes. And when we lose hope and fall into despair, oftentimes it is because the idol that we were pursuing did not deliver. This past week, there have been a lot of articles about a pastor out in California who committed suicide. You think, how in the world can a pastor commit suicide? How does a pastor get to the place that he has moved from discouragement to depression, despair, that he would take his own life, in this case, leaving a beautiful wife, a large church, and three or four kids. Oftentimes it happens, yes, because the weight of the ministry is is unlike, as a pastor I can say this, unlike any other weight that people carry. Not only do they carry their own burdens in, within their, their own lives and their own family, but they carry the burdens for the church as well. And when they carry the burdens for the church as well, the sheep that they're privileged to be the under-shepherd of under the Lord Jesus Christ, the weight of theirs sets upon them as well. The pressures of the world to be a significant pastor, to build a platform, to serve a large church, to have this number of baptisms, to build all these buildings and Starley's programs and all of these things. Listen, it can weigh heavy on a pastor in such a way that he stops relying on God and God's Word to be all that he needs. And when that happens, when that happens, he turns to other things 
either as a way of escape within the church and outside of the church and those things ultimately do not satisfy and ultimately do not feel and ultimately leave him feeling helpless. If he's not content with trusting God in the Word of God to accomplish the work of God, he turns to games and gimmicks and other things to attract people, to make the numbers look good, to raise money, to build buildings, and do all of these things. And at the end, he feels helpless and hopeless and despair and can't keep that circus of monkeys contained. Even pastors struggle with finding significance and meaning and value in things other than God because all of our hearts, all of our hearts are constantly creating idols. Notice what they did instead. Notice what they did instead. They did not repent. They worshipped idols. Verse 21. They did not repent of their murders. They did not repent nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Now, now these things are prevalent in the world we in which we live in today, but apparently are going to become even more prevalent in the days ahead. More prevalent in the days ahead. You see, once the heart is set in its hostility towards God, not even the scourge of death will lead people to repentance. Their heart is turned towards that. They worship idols and they increasingly do all of these things. And before you know it, their consciences are sealed and they do these things without even feeling conviction, without even having a tinged conscience at all. Their consciences are sealed and therefore they just pursue those things. What once was secretly, now they do openly and ultimately in public and then get the public to accept them as the norm. You can take anything. For example, murders. Just specifically relate that to abortion. Right? Uh, people weren't proud of abortions. Today they're wearing t-shirts and promoting it and expecting the public to accept it. What about sorceries? Right? You have all these psychics and psychic lines and right horoscopes and all of these things, right? Putting their hope and and, and, and trust in, in all of these things related to powers beyond that which God gives. Immorality certainly is one. I mean, look, look how far we've degraded in our immorality. The word is porneia. It means every form of sexual immorality. Every, every bit of perversion is included in this. And when they chase after God, chase after their gods, little g gods, their idols, their perversions continue to increase and now becomes public and accepted in the public square, nor of their thefts, which is simply, as you know, stealing things. What an indictment of a depraved heart. And beloved, only the gospel of grace can change that heart. Only the gospel of grace.
And in this passage, what we see is that God is sovereign and using evil to judge evil and using it for His purposes. Listen to what Helmut Tylek said. He says, however great may be the leeway that the satanic powers possess in history, and who is not conscious of this today, however strong may be the rebellion and the opposition, the fact still remains that in the ultimate reckoning, even this opposition is included in God's plan for the world and is being guided by God to a goal which the demons themselves never sought. Luther summed up the experience in the rather startling phrase, that even the devil is still God's devil and must be subservient to his higher goals because God is his Lord too. When the apocalyptic horsemen storm across the earth and the earth and the world shakes beneath their hoofbeats and terror lay waste mankind, then we must remember that it is God who allows even those powers of destruction to ride and the trumpets to blow, that it is He who waves them on and He who can check them with the flick of His sovereign hand. This is the hidden structure of God's providence and God's government of the world and it is there even when God has abandoned men to their own self-destruction and seems to be doing nothing but letting things happen. This is the ultimate comfort for of the Christian faith in providence when God is silent and history grows murky and dark. God is sovereign and in His providence is directing and controlling everything that happens for His purposes. Even in the dark, murky places where God seems silent, our God is there. And He is working. The question for us is, are we listening? The question for us is, will we repent? And the question is, will we worship the God who made us or will we worship the gods we make? My prayer is that God would reveal to us the idols of our heart and that we would not become so caught up in our idols that we hear the warnings of God to forsake them and destroy them. And instead, we continue to dabble in them and will ultimately experience the pain with which those idols bring. And beloved, they always bring pain. So by way of application, let me ask you this question. Two of them. Number one. Apart from what you know the answer ought to be, and this is rhetorical, which means you don't answer this out loud. Ava, just making sure. She always answers rhetorical questions. Um, what is it in your heart what is it in your heart that you are secretly or publicly maybe right clothed in good reasons pursuing may not be a bad thing but it may be for the bad intentions that God, that, that right now that you are pursuing and you just feel if we were to pin you down, you would say, if I just had this, if I just got to here, if I just accomplished that. And how does your passion and pursuit of that thing, even a good thing, I'm not saying bad things, even good thing. How does your passion, pursuit, thought processes and all those things working towards that affect you, believer, your relationship with Almighty God? Beloved, bring that in check. 
Because anything that comes between you, where you are, and God, anything that comes between you and God is closer to God than you are right now. What is that good thing that, that, that if you accomplish it, wouldn't just bring a sense of happiness, joy, contentment for a moment, but is basically your identity if this could just happen, if I could just do this, and you are pursuing it with everything that you have, beloved. Be careful. Even that good thing can become a God thing, which is not a good thing. Pursuing something good by means beyond which God ordains is not good. Secondly, on the other side, what is that evil? What is that dark? What is that unholy thing that's there in your life? That's the Bible calls a snare. And you've heard the warnings of God to remove that from your life, to stop that, to stop engaging in that activity, in that idol, pursuing that thing. What is it that you know you've heard the warnings of God about and yet continue to dabble in those things? Beloved, to go down that path and to continue down that path is only going to bring devastation and destruction upon your life and those around you. Don't say it's my sin, Pastor. It doesn't affect anybody but me. That is not true. There is no sin that you engage in, even secret sins, that ultimately only affect you. Number one, you do it in the presence of God. And number two, it changes our relationship with others. And three, ultimately, will bring about negative consequences because sin kills, it always kills. And if you can identify those things in your life now that you know God has clearly spoken to you and you are disobeying even as a believer, then you can understand even more in this passage of Scripture how those who see the hand of God even in His devastation and destruction still refuse to repent and return to Him. May God lead us to identify the good things that have become God things that we may put them right back in their rightful place giving honor and glory to God. And may God convict us of those bad things, those evil things that we think that we're doing that doesn't affect or hurt anybody. May we repent of those things and put our hope and trust and satisfaction and fulfillment in pursuing God and God only and allowing these other things to have place the good things, not the bad things, in our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to God. Let's pray together. Father, oh, it gives me great comfort to know that there are not two opposing forces. They're not good and evil and they're on equal ground. I'm thankful that God, You are greater. And You are so much greater that You can even, in a way that we can't imagine, understand, or grasp, just believe from Your Word, that You can use and direct and determine the outcome of what they do in a way that brings You glory. I'm thankful, Lord, that each and every one of us who are going through difficult and troubling times even now can rest in Your sovereignty and in Your providence that, God, You know. And if You chose to remove those trials and tribulations from our life, You have the power and the ability to do so. 
But Father, if you give us the strength to bear up under those trials and troubles and tribulations, you are just as sovereign in allowing those things to come. That these trials, even as Mark taught us today, they do build endurance. It does produce faith. And ultimately, is for our good and for You to receive more glory. Father, I pray that even as we continue our study of this book, that we will see that not only it does it give us details about the future, but it challenges us in our everyday life as well. So Father, may we be people who repent and believe the Gospel and become part of the family of God. God, grant that the lost would be saved through this ministry and that we would be people who repent continuously of going against Your law and doing things our own way. That we would be constantly reminded of Your truth. Because there and there alone is where joy is found and where you receive the most glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Jesus shall reign.